Welcome to episode four of my new podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have, and debunking some of the myths around our health. It's an absolute pleasure in episode four to welcome Hannah Vaughan-Jones, and she's going to talk about finding your identity. Now, Hannah is an Emmy-nominated British journalist She's hosted primetime shows on CNN and Sky News and interviewed the last three British prime ministers. Hannah moderates global events across the public and private sectors, specialising in global health. Her most important role is as a mum to her little boy, born after 15 rounds of IVF treatment. So Hannah and I have had some interesting meetings and we've done some events in the past, which we will bring up throughout the podcast But I wanted to start with Hannah's fertility journey. She's been very outspoken about the issues she went through to have her son, which I really admire in women. I think we need to have more conversations about fertility journeys. And she's got a very special story. So I will let her start by telling us about her fertility journey. Over to you, Hannah. Thank you so much, Joyce. Um, hilarious listening to that intro, by the way, when you talk about interviewing the last three British prime ministers, and that only actually takes us back less than a year. So <laughs> when you break it down, it's not actually that impressive. Um, but thank you very much for such a lovely, a lovely welcome. And um, I'm thrilled to be on the podcast. Um, so yes, my fertility journey experience. Um, so Sunny, my little boy, who's now three, was the last roll of the dice for us. We, me and my husband, Lewis, we started trying for a baby before we were engaged. So um, probably in my sort of around 32, 32 years old. And like most people just assumed it would happen. And like many people, it just didn't. And um, we quickly went into the fertility exploration routes and paths, starting off with the NHS in the, here in the UK and then going down various private clinics and what ended was uh, we had what um, I think Jessica said she had it as well, Jessica Hepburn, unexplained infertility, which is not a diagnosis. And I just think personally think it's unacceptable in this day and age to ever be told that because you're basically saying we just don't know. There's no reason. There's no obvious reason, but we just don't know why you can't conceive naturally. And um, ended up doing 15 rounds of treatment. So that was... 10 full stimulation cycles, so 10 egg retrievals um, of ICSI. So you'll have to to explain what ICSI stands for because I can't quite remember. Um, But it's a kind of like a a heightened version of standard IVF, I guess. So 10 cycles of that and then various uh, transfers, if any embryos, resulted from those 10 full rounds of uh, long protocol or short protocol stimulation. And then uh, five frozen transfers as well and last roll of the dice as I said we kind of well we had really sort of got to the end of the line for us had decided that if these two embryos that were in the freezer didn't work that we would uh, go down donor conception routes so we would look at donor eggs and donor sperm and we actually had flights booked to Barcelona we were all sorted prepared to go out and create beautiful Spanish children. Um, But somehow, unbelievably, this very, very ugly, poorly graded little embryo stuck. And he's completely beautiful. And three and yeah, the the light of our lives. 
that that's so amazing and and actually so we met on a radio program where you were talking about your 15 cycles and yeah. how you were going to go for donor conception I'll let you finish off the story <laughs> well yeah so it was a it was a it was a radio program presented by Emma Barnett wasn't it so and Emma I have to say who's a fantastic broadcaster with the BBC and she's just had her second IVF baby so huge congrats to Emma as well um, but she was uh, raising awareness about IVF and fertility struggles in general. And uh, I felt really weird and guilty because as it happens, I was about four or five weeks pregnant. And for anyone who's gone through any fertility struggles, at four or five weeks pregnant, you've probably already had quite a lot of scans because you're you're so nervous about whether this is going to hold um, and so I arrived at this thing and I was sort of talking to all the other guests there and talking on air about infertility and how awful it was all the while knowing that I had this secret um, that I was pregnant and it seemed like it was all kind of going okay and the only person who knew at the time was Lewis my husband and I grabbed you pulled you to one side I was like Joyce Joyce I think I'm pregnant and you were just like no you're not <laughs> And I, it was wonderful because it was just the first time that I'd been able to say it out loud and it kind of made it real. And the fact that I was talking to someone who knew all about both the, the emotional impact and the, the struggle, but also the science as well. So you could sort of reassure me and um, be excited for me as well. So it was wonderful. So very, very special and well done you for being kind of like the second person in the world to know about <laughs> about that. <laughs> I, I feel very privileged every time you say that story. And um, I must tell you, I have welled up a bit. Um, and hearing Jessica's story as well, it, it does. I, I think what we've been through, um, obviously people know I've been through IVF as well. And it's it never leaves us. It is, I'm sure, I'm sure you have a cry every now and then and look at Sunny and think, wow. You know, I look at yeah. my three and I can't believe it. Well, I always say um, that infertility doesn't define me anymore. It did for a long time. It was all I was. And we'll go on to that when talking about like identity and stuff. So it doesn't define me anymore, but it will forever shape me. It, it will stick with me forever. And it's a trauma that never goes. There's really weird times that it all like flares back up again. So I had to go and do a cervical screening test recently. It was my three yearly checkup. And I'd lost I lost a friend about four years ago to what started started out as cervical cancer and then became lots of other cancers as well eventually. And she died at the age of 38. And so I promised myself, really, not her so much, but I, I, I promised myself that I would always go and have these tests um, as soon as the letter came through. But I go in there and there's something about having been sort of prodded and probed and poked and all the rest of it in a medical environment for so long that as soon as you're back on that kind of like bed being poked and poked and prodded again that the trauma just comes straight back and and the last yeah the last two times I've had I've gone for my cervical screening test I've just bawled my eyes out the whole time because it's a it's like PTSD in a way and that's how it manifests for me so yes it's definitely something that never leaves you I, I use the word trauma as well, and I have used PTSD before, and I've I've, I've had some counselling about it, and she cried, and I, I think it is it does it is like PTSD. I don't think people realise what we go through to to try and conceive, and I don't know. I think the IVF obviously 
it's such it's such a difficult journey. And I want I wondered if you would touch on. So you and I did a, a session once with Jessica during her fertility fest, and we were talking about the treatments that sometimes IVF clinics add on to the basic treatment. So we call them IVF add-ons, and there's a whole list of them. And I've worked with the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority to help create a traffic light system so patients can navigate these of whether there is evidence or not evidence that they're going to help them have a baby. And I've also been working with the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology or ESHRA, and we've written recommendations, which we're just editing at the moment after consultation. So we we have these long list of these treatment add-ons and you know, when we go through IVF, I'm sure you, I tried, I tried acupuncture, I had reflexology, I tried many different things, anything that would help me try and, and have a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wondered if you would share a little bit about your views on um, these sort of treatments that clinics might suggest to people. Um, you had some really great comments when we did the event together. Yeah, I think, um, so as I said at the start, 15 rounds of treatment overall but that doesn't even touch the surface really of all the other things that happen in between um so from endometrial scratches to the which are just hideous to um allowing an embryologist to have just to take sort of time-lapse photos of an embryo which I never really understood how it actually benefited the embryo or me or whether it was just to sort of enable the embryologist to be able to do their you know, to learn a bit more. So that was confusing. And everything, all these add-ons in our minds um, were, it was a minimum £250 for each thing. It always just seemed to be kind of like the going rate, £250, £500 or £750. And then other, not necessarily an add-on, I don't know if you'd call it that, but there were a, a bunch of tests, which I don't really know why, but they were called the Chicago test. They were sent, you, you did all these blood samples, blood tests, and then everything was sent to Chicago. And and then it would come back and it would tell you whether you had like overactive, underactive thyroid or whatever it was. And as ever, story of my IVF life, everything came back as inconclusive or there's nothing wrong or unexplained. So I was like, well, great. Well, that was that was £750 just for you to advance your knowledge without giving me anything. And I think that's the thing about the add-ons or the sort of like the unregulated side of the industry you're, you as a patient are at your most vulnerable and you would do anything. You would give a limb to make this work. And it's it's that feeling of being taken advantage of by the people who you are entrusting your entire life's happiness with. And and I, that that's what I found really, really unforgivable. And, and Lewis and I, by the end, you know, especially for, you know, for, for us in a, in a um, heterosexual relationship, it was obviously Lewis who was sort of watching me go through a lot of the physical side effects of, of everything with treatment. And so the one way that he felt that he could take control was sort of taking control of the finances. At least let's try and get a grip on that. And by, I mean, goodness knows, maybe halfway through all of our rounds of treatments. But by the time we were kind of, you know, exasperated by the whole thing, um, I remember him going into seeing our, our uh, consultant when we were preparing to sort of like, well, have a debrief on why the last round didn't work and preparing next uh, steps. And he said, by the way, we're not, I'm just going to say this from the, from the start, we're not doing any of it. I don't want to know if there's any kind of like, oh, you should try this, you should try that. 
I asked you at the start of the last round of treatments, is there anything else that we could do? Is there anything else? And you said, oh, no, 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 no. We've, we've, we've tried everything. We've thrown the kitchen sink at it. I had one of those fat drips, which is just that, I don't even know what it was like, Im- immunotherapy treatment, which is basically you're, 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 you're hooked up to a, a drip of kind of egg yolk and goodness knows whatever else to try and kill my my natural killer cells or something like that, which didn't exist. So it was literally just a fat drip going into me. <laughs> like 3000 calories over two hours. So I was like, great, wonderful. Um, and, and Lewis was just like, we're just not doing it. So please don't mention anything. Please don't say anything. Don't offer us anything, nothing at all. We're just doing straightforward IVF. And because ultimately we got to the point where we were, we were like, this is just, it, it's just luck. It's just, it all comes down to luck. And we're doing everything we possibly can in terms of hand being healthy and you know or ticking all the boxes but we're not doing anything extra and as you said I'm sure it cost you an absolute fortune for all that Mm. treatment yeah I mean a lot of the treatment was you know things like hysteroscopy so when you actually go and have a full-on medical procedure I mean that costs a lot that was uh four or four or five grand I think or something like that just just for that and then um, so yes, overall, we worked it out with all of the, the, the supplements that you take and, uh, I don't know, Chinese herbal medicines and goodness knows whatever else. It was about £80,000. Um, I mean, he's worth it, don't get me wrong, but we, we know how lucky we are to have been in the position just to to have that. I mean, it cost us everything, um, but we were fortunate in having family support as well, financial support and emotional support. And, you know, I'm just forever aware of the fact that we're so lucky to have been in the position to keep going whereas some people are just like you know I'm I I'm only I only have what the NHS can offer me if they can offer me anything at all and other people are just like well I'm I'm wiped out now uh it's awful to think that your your life's happiness is determined by your bank balance awful Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so many people won't be able to access that because they just can't afford it. And I was incredibly lucky that yeah. because I work in the field, I didn't pay for the majority of my treatment. I think my bill was about 40000 mm. I tried not to, to think about it. But, you know, I, I just feel for those people whose journey stops right at the beginning because the NHS doesn't support it and, and they can't fund it. Yeah, yeah awful and also all this stuff about BMI as well like different um, clinical commissioning groups kind of have different rules about who's eligible for treatment and when I know obviously we've just gone through a global pandemic so priorities shift and and I get that I feel enormously for those people who've been caught up in all of that but I mean I've spoken to people over the years who've said that they they haven't been eligible for treatment because their partner has a child from a previous relationship sort of 20 years ago and so therefore they have a family and it's just like well that's that's ridiculous I mean that's that's not my choice it's not you know it, it, it's ridiculous uh, ways that you know funding groups can get around funding people's happiness <laughs> and in, in my uh, work sphere I'm very aware that countries like Belgium um, they fully fund six cycles uh, they are they are yeah. one of the best but it is a UK problem that we do have for sure and France so, is very good I think as well isn't it they have quite yeah. a lot of treatment available most most countries are better than us but let's let's move on to the title of of 
that you gave me for the podcast because I'm really intrigued to know you've had a really successful career and you wanted to talk about finding your identity. So please tell me more. Well, yeah, so I spent a long time through my sort of IVF years pondering um, womanhood and what it meant to be a woman. And, and as someone who had thus far failed to become a mother, did that make me somehow less of a woman? And Jessica, I know, touched on this um, this point as well in her in her episode with you. And then when I was pregnant with Sunny, I just thought, well, great, I'm going to be a mum. And so therefore, all of these these questions that I'd had would were sort of like null and void now because... Um, you know, I was going to become a mum and therefore I'd somehow be a complete woman, I suppose. Um, and little did I know that it was not so much about how to be a good or how to be the best woman or how to be the best mum. It was just like how to be the best version of me. Like, How do I actually be me? Um, and as I went through this this process, what emerged was this was this understanding or acceptance recognition of identity and the fact that my identity was ever changing and evolving all the time um and that you know sort of 40 year old me or nearly 42 year old me is very different to sort of 32 year old me and 22 year old me and that's okay as well but it just means that my priorities need to shift with that my understanding of success my understanding of happiness and you know just because I, I might be able to sort something out in my head now about what my identity is and how, therefore, I frame my life right now, that doesn't mean to say that in 10 years' time it's going to be exactly the same. It could be completely different. So it's it's been a real journey on accepting, um, accepting and embracing, I suppose, the inevitability of my ever-changing identity. And I, I think from speaking to so many kind of like friends and, you know, neighbours, fellow mums in particular – locally it seems like really getting to grips with your identity is such a struggle not just in the immediate aftermath of having a child that kind of like immediate postnatal stage but really kind of like for a good few years afterwards and that could be because of all the struggles with childcare costs or whatever your relationship status might be or financial situation but it seems like a something or it's definitely something that I've grappled with um, and and now kind of think is a good thing and a, a, something that's quite fun to kind of get your head around but it does seem that some that it resonates with a lot of other people as well and it manifests in loads of different ways in my life how how have you find found the juggle between keeping your career going and being a mother you know they, they have to say can we have it all um and I, no. I would say not at the same time <laughs> you know what that, that that's my mantra so there's been so much there's always so much talk about that isn't it you know recently when Jacinda Ardern announced that she was stepping down as New Zealand Prime Minister then there was all this talk like oh can women have it all and I would just say like take gender out of it this isn't a a male or a female thing this is um can anyone have it all not at the same time you just can't and I can't and I used to think that was a bad thing because you know you kind of go through child of the 80s 90s and you're just like yeah I'm gonna have it all I'm gonna be this strong kind of like professional career woman but I'm also gonna have this massive family and I'm just gonna do it all and it'll be great and then it's just like there's so much joy to be had in all of the the various facets of your life why don't you just have little bits at one time (laughs) and then stack them all up rather than saying I'm gonna have it all right now and so career-wise I think I kind of knew that I wasn't going to go back to to news reading, being a news broadcaster when I was pregnant with Sunny. 
Um, I was already kind of freelance by that stage. So I, I sort of went on maternity leave, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't actually maternity leave because I, I wasn't going back to anything. Um, so I knew that I was going to be kind of out on a limb, but I was trying to sort of find that exciting because in my head I was like, well, maybe I'm just going to be this sort of earth mother who just wants to sort of glue myself to my child for the first three years of his life or something like that. Um, maybe I won't want to do anything at all. Um, maybe I won't be in a position to do that financially and Lewis will be like, nope, you've got to go and get a job. Off you go. I just, but I, I knew that, that going back to what I'd done before wasn't necessary. It wasn't really an option for me. And also I think having one newsreader in one house is more than enough. Two would be a bit kind of overkill. So Lewis, my husband is a BBC news anchor. Um, so career wise, I was like, well, I'm very envious in a way of all of these other mums around me, you know, my kind of like NCT antenatal groups and stuff, because most of them were saying, oh, I'm going back, I'm on maternity leave, and I'm going back to work in six months, nine months, a year or whatever it is. And I was like, well, there's a kind of like stability and, a, and a, a certainty in that that must be really nice when you're struggling with that immediate kind of like, you know, first time mum, the, you know, the fog is there, the sleep deprivation and all the rest of it. And they knew that come, you know, whatever it was, September or something, they were going back to something that they knew they could do because they'd been doing it for however long. Um, but it soon kind of like, yeah, it just sort of dawned on me that actually I'm the lucky one. I've got to have to go out on a limb and push brand Hannah or brand HVJ out on my own. But I didn't really know what, what I was or what I was good for anymore because I didn't have the security of a, of a broadcasting organisation to sort of like scoop me up or anything like that. Um, on the other hand, though, it turns out to be a really good thing because obviously so many women, as we know, go back to work and they either get, you know, because their identity has shifted because they're now a parent um, and their priorities are different and their time constraints are different. They either go back to work and try and go back to work part time or they might get sort of pushed sideways and somehow the career ladder topples a bit or stalls. Um, whereas I could, once I'd worked out who I was, what I wanted to do, what I was good at, um, I could then sort of design my own career, my own professional life that would hopefully balance with what I needed to do at home. And I felt really strongly that I, I didn't want to be, this is just for me, I didn't want to be at home all the time, just doing, you know, just being kind of like a stay at home mum stuff. Um, but I, I really wanted to be there to watch and really watch him grow um, rather than just sort of like having to constantly be off in the office or whatever it was. So career wise, I've had to take a bit of a hit on some things. There's been some things I've sort of maybe professionally have either turned down or have been pushed to one side, but I've got the balance right now. And that's all because I've kind of accepted that my life's different to what it was three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And it's also different to what my identity and my priorities will be like in, you know, a couple of years time, maybe when Sonny's at school. So yeah, so career wise, it definitely, um, it manifested this kind of like finding your identity thing manifested in that, but also just like the mothering stuff as well. I mean, no one told me that mothering would be so mental. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I don't know if you felt this, but like everyone kind of talks about, oh, it will be hard at, at first because you'll be so tired and sleep deprived. But then there's this kind of, they talk about the fog lifting at like three months. Um, and at three months, when Sunny was three months old, we went into the first lockdown, I think, around about that sort of time. And I did feel like, 
okay, I'm kind of getting to grips with the mothering now. And I kind of know how to do this. Like he's gaining weight and he was, uh, he was feeding really well and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I felt good on that, but I was like, I, I didn't know how to do anything for me. And so the fourth trimester, you know, it's still going on. It's not just three months after the fourth trimester for me is like three years minimum. Um, so I, I think that's, that's one of the things that I kind of, yeah, really, really struggled with. And I had this phrase that I used to sort of say to Lewis and repeat to myself all the time, which is like, I'm, I'm more than competent. You know, what was it? I'm more than capable and less than competent. So I could do everything. I'm, I generally multitask like a demon anyway, <laughs> in life. But so I could do everything, but just nothing very well. I didn't even feel like I could brush my teeth properly. You know, I was just sort of busy, 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 cooking, feeding, blah, 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 blah. But just everything was just a bit rubbish. Um, and it took a really long time to kind of like try and work out that you're not failing at stuff. You're just, you're just doing a lot at the same time. And so you just need to kind of like cut some things out or take a break or go easy on yourself. But yeah. That's exa- exactly what I, I was going to ask you. I felt like I was doing everything badly. I was a bad mother. Mm. I was a bad, a bad at work. I was bad in my relationship. But you, you sort of just said that. Then we don't feel like we're doing anything well because we are spread so thinly <laughs> to try and do all these things as a mother. Yeah, no, and it's crazy. I just think you know, if I just if I could go back and talk to myself three years ago, then I'd be like, Christ, I mean, just 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 be happy that you've got a healthy little boy, but stop trying to kind of like be this brilliant, brilliant version of Hannah it's just like just be you you're already you're okay as a mum like he's alive he's healthy he's happy so that that's basically early days all you really need to to get straight with mothering or parenting um and as a woman it's just like your body's just being completely brutalized I mean I I had a cesarean as well I was really tough uh, the recovery from that um and I was used to kind of like being a really healthy sort of quite active fit person um and I suddenly I was just like didn't recognize the body I was in I didn't my brain was a mess um and it was just very hard to kind of accept that this is just you right now go easy on yourself things are going to shift things are going to be easier but just like prioritize what you need and what your family needs right now and then you'll be able to get the balance right and and thinking about what you've said about finding your identity I've been talking to lots of uh, men and women, um, about just for them to think about what will make their life the best life they've ever had. And I think lots of people don't have, they don't stop and think about what will make them happy. They just get in this mm. sort of treadmill of life. And then the next thing is, you know, they're my age 60 and they, they, and I'm asking them now, so what would, what would really make you happy? And they take time to think about it. So I think people, I think as you know, you had that time when Sonny was little to think about what will be the new Hannah, what will be your, you know, the best version of yourself. And I think it was great that you you had the chance to do that. You did that. Well, lockdown also was really beneficial to to me. I know it was hideous for so many other people, especially with little ones, because you you obviously are separate from all the support network that you might need. But it was really useful to me because I got to block out the noise that I mean, comparison has always been a sort of challenge for me. I look at other people, whether it's professionally or friends or any anyone basically in my life and around me and kind of think, oh, they're doing that. I want that. Uh, well, maybe I should be doing this as well. Or, you know, it's a constant 
struggle. Um, and I got to just stop and be like, just just do what you need to do right now to like get through to the end of the week. <laughs> That's it. And then it will get, you know, this too shall pass, as everyone always tells tells you at the early stages of parenting. Um, it, it will get easier and things will become clearer. But to your point there about you know, speaking to people about understanding what would make them happy, I think for me, you know, my understanding of success or my definition of success or happiness is very, very different today to what it was, you know, even a couple of years ago. Um, not just determined by Sunny, but um, I, 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 I see happiness as being a, a sort of a content, a contentment. But it's not about being giddy. It's just kind of finding balance, I suppose. And success for me doesn't look like professional success. It looks more like health. Um, and I think if if I if my family's healthy, if I'm healthy, then that seems like a massive win. Whereas before, it was much more about um, you know bank balance or salary or, or status, um, and it just that's just different. And again, that could change in a couple of years. It might become important to me again or necessary. But um, but right now, I'm lucky in that that. I feel good about my success as a as me, and I think I'll tell you right. It does change through through our lives, um, so we need to keep readdressing it for sure. Um, let, let's move on. I mm. wanted to ask you. I'm asking why, guess. Have you heard people say why didn't anyone tell me this? Yeah, most of it is about the juggle. Um, so, say with friends, family, neighbours. Lots of people say, like, why didn't anyone tell me that it would be so hard to either have it all or to have have a family and balance that with with, with a career? And I think, I mean, it's you know, it's a really valid question, but I think we should move it on a bit now to instead of just saying, oh, why didn't anyone tell me it'd be so difficult? It's just like we need to change, we need to relay the foundations and redraw the boundaries so that the next generation or people younger than us who or people who say like, you know, wish I wish I'd known this before that they can then go and be better equipped to deal with what's going to what's going to come because every mum uh, knows that this is a it's a struggle and it's a juggle and that childcare costs in the UK are completely unsustainable and out of control and so it will it won't well it's very unlikely that you'll be able to just go straight back into your previous role and then continue climbing at the same pace whilst also maintaining you know, whatever semblance of, of family life that you that you want to create for your for your children and for your your family. And it doesn't mean to say that something's got to give and so you either need to give up work or or get a full time nanny. I'm not saying that. But it's just there is a balance there. And I think we should be more honest about it. There's a lot of kind of jokes all it's all funny, but about, you know, oh doing the school run in your pajamas and uh, you know, commuter hell and relationships falling apart and all this sort of stuff. And it's all very funny on social media, all these mums sort of saying, oh, God, you know, ah, the juggle and necking wine at 4pm on a Friday or something like that. But let's like, let's actually try and do tangible, make tangible differences to make, you know, the, the, the next bunch of people coming along behind us, make their life a bit easier so so that you don't have people saying oh I didn't realize it would be so hard it's just like it is going to be really tough you are going to have to do some very very big like soul searching and there are probably going to be some shifts that you didn't expect that you would make because your identity will change you are a parent suddenly and you have someone who's utterly 
entirely dependent on you. And therefore, you can't just sort of like, you know, go off on a whim on a weekend wild swimming, <laughs> for example. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just like, yeah, everything shifts. Um, and you need to, uh, personally, I think that I'm getting to a point now where I'm excited about it about the the sort of unknown but going with the flow and being flexible enough to kind of like yeah to be like yeah everything's going to change it's not going to be what I imagined but it's going to be new and exciting and it will serve the needs of me my health my mental health my physical health and my family's health as well so yeah that would be my response to anyone saying why didn't you tell me this I'm just like I did or or let me tell you better (laughs) and as you say it's really important to let that next generation know um some of the things that, that we didn't know um and have you come across any yeah. myths either in your fertility journey or motherhood or career that you would like to debunk I think it's just we we kind of touched on it before but that idea of you know having it all um I I don't it's not that I'm saying for those people out there who feel like they do have it all and they should be able to have it all and they are nailing it then I'm like that kudos to you that's that's great but I think this this kind of like perception that everyone women in particular should strive to have it all I think is is um is misplaced and it's also and it's misleading it makes people feel under pressure that they're somehow constantly underperforming. Whereas actually it's just like, you can't have it all at the same time. Take enormous pride and pleasure and joy from having what you have right now and knowing that what you might want is just around the corner and it's just not, it's not happening right now because you've got other things to focus on and enjoy that, you know, enjoy, you know, whether it's children or pets or holidays or whatever it might be or you know I, I now kind of do I used to run quite a lot not competitively but you know I used to do some half marathons and um, I used to enjoy running and, and after I had Sunny that was my kind of like um, my first sort of pivot back into fitness if you like but my 40 year old limbs and joints will not sustain that right now maybe when I'm 50 I'll run a marathon who knows but right now what I need to do is like strength training because I'm kind of like staring down the menopause barrel going, right, okay, I need to kind of get some, like stave off osteoporosis and get some strong muscles and bone density going on here. So I'm doing loads of strength training. And that's something that I never in a million years, because I'm quite broad. So I was like, oh God, if I do, if I do weights, I'm going to be this like bodybuilder. (laughs) But it's not true. And it's just really, really good for me, good for my mind, good for my, you know, physical health as well. So, um, and yeah, I just think, you know, there, there's so many myths about, you know, having it all, doing it all at the same time. And just like, it's not possible. It's just not possible to go and run, you know, 10 miles in the morning and then get the kids out up and into school or nursery, or whatever it is. Also have a shower, look vaguely presentable, get yourself on a train, get into work, do a presentation, cook a meal, get the slow cooker on. You just you can't do it all. You just can't at the same time um, without burnout. I would I'd I'd suggest (laughs) but you will blink and he will be a teenager um and then and then you can start doing some things again (laughs) but don't we mustn't wish anything away we must enjoy it so Hannah you've you've had an amazing life and you've you persevered with that IVF um so I wanted to ask you what motivates you 
what motivates me? Um, making progress and moving forward. I think a lot of people who've gone through any kind of fertility journey will recognize that feeling of being stuck, being static, not making progress. Again, often in comparison to people around you, your friends and family. Um, but I felt very, Lewis and I both felt very stuck in in one place for a long time. And so we we really relish momentum and um, making memories. And that's all about kind of, yeah, making the most of the here and now, but moving forward all the time. Yeah, I think when, you, when you're going through fertility treatment, you're just in limbo and you don't know the yeah. outcome. And I always felt if someone told me I could cope with this more, if someone said to me, if you keep going, you'll have a baby. Um, then yeah. I, or, or if they told me you wouldn't have a baby, then at least I'd know. But yeah, that yeah, momentum. I love that. Yeah. So, so what makes you happy, and where is your happy place? What makes me happy? This is quite specific. <laughs> but what makes me happy is is feeding my family. <laughs> so I am. Um, I'm a bit of a foodie anyway, and that I just love. I love my food. Um, and I, Lewis is a bit like, I hope you won't mind me saying this. Well, he's, anyway, <laughs> he's a bit, he's a bit like a toddler and that he needs to be fed sort of basically every 90 minutes. It's a bit weird. <laughs> so, um, so I love having the time now as well to be able to, um, I mean, it's not like I'm a home baker or anything like that. I'm not, you know, making cupcakes every, every other day. But um, I love being able to feed my family. And as soon as they're sitting down, my two boys are sitting down around the table, like stuffing their faces with a lamb stew or something like that. There's nothing that makes me happier. So that's definitely what makes me happy. And my happy place, and this will resonate with you, is kind of in water, by water, on water. Any of any of the above. <laughs> I think there must be something that joins us people who just love the water so much. Mm. And I, I know you cold water swim and we have, we kept saying we were going to do it. We haven't done it yet. So we'll try and do it this year, but it's yeah. Water. I, yeah. Obviously I agree. Well, you say I cold water swim. I've, I've done it a couple, a handful of times. I've got all the gear, very little idea. And I am kind of like, I'm one of those people that all, all my friends would say that any given any opportunity to get in the sea, in the pool, and it doesn't matter what time of year, where we are, I will always do it. Always, always. Um, I just love it. I was a bit of a fish as a kid. I was just constantly in pools, swimming, swimming a lot. Um, so yeah, that's, there's something that's really calming and soothing about it. Um yeah just being by the water even just doing that but I, I need to get into this cold water swimming properly because I've been a bit lapsed about it and so I'm, I'm like now that I feel a bit stronger as well because I've been doing all this weight training so I'm like right I know that I can get in the water I'm not going to be a wimp about that that's fine but I just need to feel like I can move my body effectively efficiently you know without being completely out of breath I'm stronger now that I feel like I could get round that lake <laughs> so we need to book it in basically we'll book it in we'll book it in and finally mm. what advice would you give your younger self I would um what would I say um I would say fle be flexible I think that's the main thing being able to go with the flow and change course and change your mind I think is a really powerful 
gift. Um, so if you can be told that or taught that from a really young age, I think that's a, an amazing thing to have. So many of us kind of like go through school and you might maybe go, right, I wanna, I'm going to be this when I grow up or I'm going to go to that university or whatever it is. Um, and then as soon as like there's a bit of flux thrown in, like whatever it is, a bereavement or just a change, it can really, really throw you and uh, and it takes a while to kind of recover. Whereas I think if you know that flexibility is a, can be a really good thing, you might change your mind on various things that you were absolutely stubbornly focused on before. Um, then, yeah, I, so I'd say be flexible, assume nothing. And you'll love this as well. Then I, I definitely would say that like education is key and just never stop learning never ever stop learning IVF taught me that definitely because I had to suddenly become a kind of like geneticist overnight or an embryologist overnight because just to understand what people are talking about so you've got all of these terms and this weird language that people are using with you and you're like I am I'm kind of a clever person I don't understand what anyone's saying (laughs) so um so yeah it was you know that was an education in itself and now I just think that yeah I, I always want to keep asking questions I mean fortunately that's kind of my job as an interviewer as a journalist I get to ask questions and hear people's views all the time and I and I hope that I'm always open to having my opinion changed because um you know you never stop learning there's never a you know there's there's always something else to read I I love that as a scientist I say we have to question everything but we have to change our mind and I think Mm -hmm. changing our mind through our personal life as well and this journey of what we want, what will make us happy. I think it's really, really important. So thank you so much, Hannah. That's been very, very inspiring. I'm sure everyone's going to love listening to you. So thank you very much for being on our podcast. Thank you so, so much for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast as well. I think it's so important to, you know, for, you know, for anyone kind of like either going through a fertility journey or a health struggle or just kind of like trying to work out where they are and hear other people's opinions on where they are in their life. It's such a valuable, valuable resource to have. So thank you for doing it. Thank you.